It's ten times the terror. Hello and welcome to Ten Times the Terror. Okay. Welcome, 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 all you ghosts, goblins, ghouls, and anyone else listening to Ten Times the Terror. My name is James. And I'm Paul. And I'm Liz. And I'm Gwen. And on today's special episode, we are entering a symphony. A symphony of horror, because we are talking about Nosferatu, otherwise known as Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror, which is a film that was released in 1922, which means this is its 100th anniversary. And so we figured it's as good as time as any to talk about it, and also we should talk about it before the year is over, because we're now in December. So here we are discussing Nosferatu. We're going to go into its its legacy, our personal histories with it, and um, just kind of discuss how this film has sort of impacted the horror genre as well as just like film overall and yeah just kind of its overarching legacy um and so a couple little kind of fun facts for you guys yeah so it's it's technical uh anniversary was march 4th 1922 which is when it was released in germany however it was not released in the u.s until about 1929 and coming across some kind of trivia in preparation for this apparently the film was banned in such countries as China and Sweden due to excessive horror, and the ban in Sweden wasn't actually lifted until 1972, which is very interesting. Um, and it looks like as of now, the film is in public domain, so it's pretty widely available. Um, and if you haven't seen Nosferatu, um, it, doing a quick Google search, it's on it's on Tubi, it's on the Roku channel, I believe it's on Amazon, so like it's pretty widely available. Um, but yeah, I, I think we can just kind of go around and just have a very kind of broad, open discussion on this film. Maybe we'll talk about our personal histories with it and kind of what our overall thoughts are. So, Dad, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts on Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror? I think it's the scariest movie ever made, at least uh, in that tradition. Uh, you know, the, the lead actor, uh, is his name is Max Schreck. Well, Max is a very common German name like Joe or Jim would be for us. And Shrek is German for terror. So is this person real or is this just a, a promotional deal? Um, I grew up very much uh, fascinated by the universal horror films, the Hammer films, uh, Vincent Price, all of that kind of stuff. I never heard of this movie until I was in high school. And my first encounter with it was on a show that ran in the summers. Uh, this is the early 60s. And it was a half hour show called Silence, Please. And what they would do is they would show essentially clips of a classic silent film. And that was my first exposure to uh, John Barrymore's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But it was also my first exposure to, um, to Nosferatu, which they had titled Dracula. And uh, I, was, I was blown away uh, with it. It just. Uh, it is just so creepy and such a dreamlike kind of thing. And um, I think that uh, the vampire, the Max Shrek, is is just like the like the scariest looking individual in the history of horror cinema. Uh, scenes like where he he rises up, bolt perfectly straight uh, on the ship as he's about to then uh, start stalking the uh, the sailors. As these claw-like hands. Other, there are complicating factors we need to talk about later on about uh, about the film. But um, this is by F. W. Murno, who's one of the greatest directors in the history of film. Um, did perhaps the greatest uh, American 
silent film, which was Sunrise, uh, even though he was a German, uh, Last Laugh, uh, he pioneered uh, deep focus uh, photography and a whole host of things. So he, he's a major, major figure in film history. But I just think it, it, you know, it is a, uh, a huge, and I want to get into all of it at once, but it's a huge example of German expressionism at its fullest. And uh, it is just, I think the fact that it is silent uh, adds to its creepiness. But that's so far for now. I can say more later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Liz, what, what, are you, what are your thoughts on Nosferatu and kind of your, your personal history with it? Um, yeah, so I was interested in that trivia, James, that you revealed. A, like some of that I didn't know that it wasn't released in the U.S. until 1929. And, and Dad, I didn't know that you didn't see it or know about it until you were in high school. It's, so um, interesting because for us, it had always been part of our sort of early film history. I can't remember how old I was when I first saw it, but it was, I was probably in high school. But I know that you've talked about it. And I think that like, you know, a lot of times on this podcast, Dad, you talk about how the classic horror film stories are retold like in every generation. And like, this is an example of the Dracula story being retold here in 1922. And I always am interested in that time period in Germany. I mean, it's like post-World War One, like oddly similar to the time we're in now. They had just come out of the like Spanish flu pandemic of like 1918. And here we are in 19, in 2022 coming out of a pandemic. And I was just sort of interested to kind of draw some parallels between what's happening in our world right now and what life might have been like when this film was made. And the other thing that um, I've always loved about Nosferatu is just how scary it continues to be to this day. And it's such an excellent reminder of like film innovation because even though it's silent and it's black and white, it, they managed to create so much atmosphere with shadows and, and, and the film techniques that they had at the time. Like there's the, the one scene where the carriage is sort of going to Nosferatu's castle. And in order to make it look like it's night, I can't remember exactly how they did this. They like reversed the, the image. So they actually played it backwards to make it look um, like the carriage was going faster than it was. I don't know why that would make it go faster. But anyway, I remember reading some of the like innovative things they did just with the techniques they had at the time. And I think it's like such a great reminder that you don't necessarily need like CGI to make things scary. Totally. Um, Gwen, what are your thoughts on Nosferatu? Um, I think there's a reason why after 100 years, it's still like one of the most prominent horror films. And not just that, but like the German expressionism in general at that time with like Canada, Dr. Caligari and Fritz Lang and different things happening. I just feel like it's always going to be affecting the genres and filmmakers today. Like for some reason that creativity and expressionism and artistry is just like kind of timeless at this point. Like it, you can always pull from it and be inspired by it because it was like such crazy amounts of creativity in that style. Okay, so I got to be honest, my probably earliest um, 
relationship to Nosferatu is probably in the SpongeBob SquarePants episode with the hashtag and slasher where they see Nosferatu flicking the lights at the end. Um, but that also, I think, hopefully speaks to kind of how how prominent Nosferatu is in the kind of pop culture. I mean, I think everyone knows the image of Nosferatu. I, I feel like that that iconic shot of the of the shadow on the walls is so is so 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 familiar. Everyone knows it, even if you don't actually know it. And similar to you, Liz, I can't recall exactly when I saw it, but I want to say, yeah, probably high school seems to be most likely. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the movie just has a real... The, the word I always come back to is eerie. I think this is just an mm. eerie film. And I love that it has the word symphony in the title, because I feel like that, that really... It is a symphonic kind of film. And also, like, when you just think about, you know, just silent cinema in general, you know, the, the, the musical <laughs> score, the, the symphony is a lot of times kind of carries the the film. And... I do think that it has such a such a gothic and and musicality to it all, and almost like a lyrical quality. And like Dad, I know I know you've often like referred to this movie as very dreamlike and then very obviously like nightmarish. And I think that's that's very accurate. Um, and yeah, I mean, I I think yeah, just just the, just Max Schreck as Count Orlock, it just it really is such an iconic image. And the the way he moves, the way he sort of stands, and yeah, like the long sharp nails, like it's so it's so original and yeah, just so kind of timeless. Um, and again, another sort of fun sort of some piece of trivia is that Nosferatu apparently is only on screen for like not even ten minutes of the movie, which I think is really is really incredible. And it, yeah. it kind of it kind of makes you think about you know even things like Hannibal Lecter and Sons of the Lambs, which we've talked about, where yeah he's also not on screen, but it just it shows that even when they are on screen, it's just so much more memorable and really just like stays with you. Well, Christopher Lee was only on screen in Horror of Dracula for you know seven eight minutes, something like that. Exactly, yeah. Dad, can you, I mean, I feel like when each of us at the different points that we went through the sort of systematic film education that you gave us, <laughs> and he, when, you, when you spoke about this film, it was always in the context of what was happening in Germany in the time, at the time. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because, um, like, you know, I, I mean, from what I recall in this period in film history, you know, you didn't have the kind of, U.S. Um, American like domination of cinema that we ended up seeing after the Second World War, or even in the 30s, you know. Um, 30s, yeah. And yeah, and so like I, I think that there was still a period where in Europe there was there was a lot of um, experimentation and then even collaboration between like different countries. Um, and I think that where where like I think film could have ended up being really different um, had the U.S. kind of not become so dominant in the '30s. Who knows? <laughs> what might I, I think you, you could you could just go through a, a, a checklist of not fifty, a hundred plus movies that you could say uh, owe something to Nosferatu. Uh, but you know, the film noir, all of those kind of movements. Uh, where you have heavy atmosphere and extreme light and darkness contrast and bizarre angles. That's all. I mean, it, it goes, it become, yes, it, it's an introduced first in Caligari, but it's perfected in Nosferatu. Um, and I, I think that, you know, you know there, I would say there's probably hundreds of films you could say, you know, Maltese Falcon, you know, a, a whole bunch of others were, and all the universal horror films. Uh, that this just has had a tremendous impact. The, uh, the other thing in 19, you know, 1922, 
uh, is Germany is a very unsettled period. Um, Nazism is is not on the horizon in 1922, but certainly anti-Semitism is, as it is in our own day. And not a few critics have remarked on the on the fact that um, that there's a um, rat-like uh, appearance to to Count Orlock, uh, and and with the um, stereotype big nose and so forth, and with the rats who coming out. Under the hull of the ship, uh, the, the Nazis made a film uh, uh, where they uh, called the Eternal Jew, ter- terrible, you know, a, a terrible film, you know, morally and spiritually. But you know, they 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 borrowed from Nosferatu uh, this image of 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 rodents and and rats, and they said the Jews in in German society were like. Uh, you know, rats in a building, you know, corrupting it and bringing in decay and, and all this sort of stuff. So that's all going on there. The other thing, too, to bear in mind, why it wasn't widely seen is, um, is this was a plagiarism. They did not have permission to use uh, the Bram Stoker novel, which clearly it's based on. And they only they simply changed the names of some of the characters. And uh, I think it was you know, shortly after the film first came out. Uh, Bram Stoker's widow, he, he had died about 10 years earlier, but her widow came out and uh, uh, sued um, I, it was Ufa or whoever was the, the, the studio that made the film, sued them for, uh, for plagiarism. And uh, a result of that was that the um, all prints of the film were confiscated and were not, not shown publicly. So uh, the fact that they even had it out in 1929 is, is, is you know, I, I, I'd forgotten that. That's kind of surprising because I don't know where they got the print, you know, because uh, it was shortly after it was released that they, they had this lawsuit and Bram Stoker's widow won, this, won the suit and the, the film was not to be shown. Wow, that, that, I remember you telling us that now that you're saying it, but I had forgotten that detail. And that's crazy. Yeah. There were not international copyright laws, uh, apparently, in that period. But uh, so what, what, what Stoker's winner did, she just sued them, you know, in the court of law and won. That's interesting. Do you think they made kind of any other, aside from, like, name changes, any other sort of changes to the plot to kind of differentiate it from Dracula? I think they, they keep Von Helsing's name there. Although Von Helsing is not the same character he is in. The other Dracula versions, um, I don't know. It it, it it it's a mystery as to where where it wasn't and how it floated around. And you got to figure. Well, it's, it's in public domain now, yeah. But um, the first time it was uh, I saw it was uh, I, and I was in high, about high school with uh, uh, Dave Gregson, a longstanding friend who shares much of the same film interests. Uh, and as a regular listener to our podcast, put that in. <laughs> but we were watching this, and we're like, we were about, just astonished at how this film looked. And we only saw like a half an hour, uh, you know, compilation of it. But uh, from that point on, I, I wanted to seek it out, and I, I've shown it in classes and everything else. It's, it's, it's just, um, uh, and you know it, it it it's also erotic as well as uh, 
theory. Uh, it just works on so many different levels. Uh, the only other film of that period you can compare it to would be Faust, um, which is also, I believe, F. F. W. Murnau. You know, Faust is the man who sold the soul to the devil for uh, all these uh, special wishes, including the, the love of this woman he wants. And, you know, of course, it all goes downhill. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, so I, you say, you know, it was released in the States in 1929. It's right on the eve of the birth of, uh, of, the, of the American horror film. So, you know, uh, I wonder, I mean, there are some scenes in it that I think, um, you know, uh, were, were borrowed for some of the universal films. Uh, the, the scene where, in the beginning, where uh, Renfield, or in the case, Jonathan Harker, is, is having his dinner, and he cuts, um, cuts his thumb when he's trying to cut some bread, and... Uh, uh, not, you know, the vampire, the Dracula starts coming over to him. And then uh, a cross that he, that he was given uh, in, the, in the village but just falls out and the vampire turns away. Uh, that's pretty much scripted the way it is in the Beta Lugosi film, which would have been, which would have been in production uh, in, um, well, probably about middle of 1930. So yeah, uh, did did Todd Browning and those people, did they actually see Nosferatu? That's a fascinating question. Because I, I wasn't aware of the, I forgot that it had, had a U.S. release that long after the, after the um, um, copyright issue had been settled. So I, I don't quite know how that worked, but um, it would be interesting to know if it had a direct impact on on all of those universal films absolutely and and it sounds like not only that but it sounds like there were different versions of the film different cuts of the film like they're saying for some the running time was about 90 minutes for others the running time was about an hour so you kind of wonder you know what parts were cut what wasn't what was included you know we kind of i'm sure you could do a real deep dive into the whole kind of uh you know theatrical history of this film but i mean yeah i mean i, I feel like when you look at the universal films you can't you can't separate the influence of Nostradamus. No, I agree very much so, and I think it uh, uh, that 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 German expression it was just a, a just a fascinating period. And when you're you know you're talking in in my mind about the you know the major periods uh, in the history of the horror film, German expression was the first one, and then it would be you know I say Hollywood in the 1930s, and then. Mm. Uh, you know, Great Britain and Europe in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and you can go up to the present, you know, <clears throat> with, with varying degrees of success and stuff from splat, uh, slasher films, uh, you know, to, um, to some of the more interesting ones we have seen. Uh, you know, the, the, but um, that earlier period is really foundational for what, what uh, these films become. And... Uh, uh, I think, you know, somebody could do a documentary just showing uh, the influence of Nosferatu in film after film after film. Uh, certainly going through all of the uh, film noir things. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm sure you could pull every decade films that are influenced by this one film. Yeah. You know, right. It's uh, 
Well, and, and not only that, Dad, but like I think it was a you or Elizabeth said early on in this episode how, you know, with horror, you kind of have examples of it in each generation. Well, there's been multiple films of Nosferatu itself. I mean, we had the the Werner Herzog remake from the 70s, mm-hmm. but also you talked yeah. about the name of Max Schreck. Well, that, that seems to be the whole kind of premise for Shadow of the Vampire, which came out with, you know, with Willem Dafoe playing Count yeah. Orlock and the whole idea of like whether or not this is a... A, a movie production or if it's a real thing and then we also have a new upcoming version by robert eggers coming out i think next year so, so i just clearly, read that yeah with bill skarsgård it's gonna have playing. bill skarsgård yeah that could be good okay. but, but it, it's interesting that, that not just you know dracula movies or vampires but that nosferatu is still very relevant for that reason yeah i feel but... like that's like a perfect time to like talk a little bit about the cultural period today, just as we talk about this film being literally a hundred years old, which is amazing. So many things have changed in those 100 years. Like it's an insane, I mean, even in my lifetime, I feel like the change has been like too much. But like when I think of like our grandfather, like, like dad, Papa, your dad, who was born in 1923, 1917. 1917 right yeah and like <clears throat> you know like he learned to drive on a model t ford and then you know he you know he the advent of like air airplanes and then television and then like going to the moon and then it's like the internet and all of these things that have been massive changes in that time period and all these innovations and yet you know, this piece of art is still so relevant today. It's still scary. It's still like a long lasting story. And technically it's still a masterpiece, which I think is pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, it also brings up the alarming uh, image of anti-Semitism because that, that was one of the things that got picked up from it. Now, whether that was intentional, or whether it's just part of the zeitgeist of that period, but um, what uh, what's a fascinating study and, and it needs to be done uh, with great care and great um, uh, great depth is uh, the whole role of antisemitism in this post World War One period, the pre Hitler period, post World War One pre Hitler. Uh, I think the uh, the image of, of antisemitism in that period. Which includes Nosferatu, uh, would be very, very interesting. Yeah, and I think like um, as we've certainly talked about before, I don't know if you've talked about it here on the podcast, but you know the idea that anti-Semitism was somehow, you know, something that just existed in Germany was completely false. You know, it was it was mm-hmm. everywhere. It was in the United States. It was in Canada. It was in every country, and and that had a lot to do with people's like lack of willingness to take boatloads of Jews that were coming seeking asylum, like all of the ways in which it was a part of the culture at the time. And, um, and I think sometimes we're a little bit dishonest when we look back at the past and we try to act like this was something that happened in Germany. And like, yes, it did happen. There were the Nazis in Germany were responsible for the Holocaust, but there were so many ways in which we all bear responsibility, you know? And I think I think that's an important message right now in our present is just, is like recognizing ways in which we say something or don't say something or stand up or don't say it, stand up, you know? 
and I know you've always been an advocate for for that um, kind of sort of courageous speaking out in conversations that are in any way racist or anti-Semitic. But I think I think sometimes we look back at the Holocaust and we act like it's something that happened in the past and it's something we're going to learn about, and and then we don't really take ownership of how we're behaving in the present. That sounded a little bit yeah. preachy. Sorry. <laughs> No, I, 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 I agree. Well, I, I feel like it's not just whether it's yeah, like racism, anti-Semitism. Like it's not just like kind of reckoning with our with our history and 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 how problematic it is, but also yeah, the fact that it's still very relevant today. That we're seeing it in today's news. So it's like, you know, if it makes you uncomfortable, like good, it's supposed to. Like we're supposed to deal with this. Yeah. We can't we can't just keep hiding from it. Yeah, it, uh, behind all of this is white supremacy, which is the uh, the fatal flaw of, of American history and. Uh, much of Western history. Totally. Um, okay. Well, I think we do. We have any kind of like closing remarks, uh, final thoughts on on Nosferatu? Uh, is it in anyone's top five here? Top five what? Four films of all time. Oh, absolutely. You're oh, opening a Pandora's you. box. <laughs> oh man, it's a whole other podcast. <laughs> top five what? We're <laughs> <laughs> gonna yeah, get right. into sub niches. <laughs> any question? No. I, uh, I, I it would be in in my, certainly not in the top five, no question. Maybe even top three or four. It might not be my top five personally, just from my own kind of. But I I, I recognize it's 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 a masterpiece and it's it's influence. And I think when 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 looking at the whole kind of trajectory of the horror genre and thinking about the kind of different subgenres that sort of come into popularity, whether it be you know slashers or or demonic films or, or monster movies or or whatever you want. I mean, now we have a lot of these kind of like art house psychological horror, but there's always a kind of return to these more classical styles. And so like the fact that we're getting a new Nosferatu about to happen just shows that like, I don't know, it seems like there's always some of the, some of the styles like this are never kind of go out of style. No, no. And, definitely. And, definitely. You know, a, a stories like Dracula and Frankenstein uh, go beyond literature. They become folklore and 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 myth and mm. so they take on a whole a whole life of their own right and even just the vampire everything like how how it's become like almost a fad now but nasrati like basically defined what vampire was and like everything has pulled from that you know between that and mm-hmm. dracula i feel like it's like just everything is from nasrati when it comes to the vampire stuff yeah i very here's another point that, uh, where it creates part of, of the mythology it's only it's Nosferatu introduces the idea that a vampire would be destroyed by sunlight that's not part of the tradition really i didn't know that wasn't part yeah, of me tradition. neither and in no i didn't know that um dracula can move around in the daylight he just doesn't have any power but uh, you, when you consider how that, that use of of, of light, and uh, think think of the climax of of horror of Dracula and stuff, where the, you know, the light comes pouring in, and you know, and and, and va- Dracula begins to just decompose into ashes. But that that becomes uh, and that so people at um, Universal and other places in Hollywood. You must have been looking at that because they they buy into that right away. 
that uh, the vampire can't survive in daylight. And and that's the whole point of the, the you know, the woman who, you know, the heroine sacrifices herself, keeps uh, Nosferatu in her in her bed bedroom, you know, all of the erotic symbolism of that, too. But she keeps him there until the, until you hear the, 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 the rooster crow and the light begins and then he just dis, he disappears into uh, nothing. And he just. And. Uh, there's all those examples in, in the Universal films, the Hammer films, and you know, on and on you go. It begins in Nosferatu. So in that sense, it, it, it added to the, the mythology of the, of the story. Oh, yeah, that's, that's huge. I feel like that, that's like now a staple of the vampire genre. Yeah, yeah. Um, it... Uh, I don't remember in in the original Dracula. All the times I've seen it, they mentioned the they mentioned how the vampire could be destroyed, you know, and they mentioned like uh, you know, stake through the heart, you know, and crucifix and so forth. I, I'm not sure they they mentioned uh, light that light can destroy the vampire. Um, but anyway, it's still it, it begins in Nosferatu. Totally okay. Well, I mean, I, I think we all have kind of a lot of thoughts here on Nosferatu and yeah clearly it's a it's a timeless film it's a timeless masterpiece and so if you haven't seen it it's widely available it's it's definitely worth watching and yeah you can see how it's how it's been so influential uh these hundred years and I'm sure we'll live on another hundred years um but I think that wraps up today's episode of 10 times the terror again I'm James and I'm Paul I'm Liz and I'm Gwen and we'll see you guys next time Thank you for listening to It's Ten Times the Terror The Podcast One of my favorite films ever (laughs) Let's do that for again Thank you for listening to Ten Times the Terror This podcast would not be possible Without listeners like you You can find out more about our podcast By visiting our website Tentimestheterror.com That's Tenxtheterror.com